Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. Today, we are talking about the attachment effect with author Peter Lovenheim. In his new book, he is exploring the powerful ways our earliest bond shapes our relationships and lives. In it, this award-winning journalist and author presents a deep dive into attachment theory, uncovering how our early childhood experiences create a blueprint for all our relationships to come. Oh, attachment theory. I find it fascinating. I think it's a really important component in why we are the way we are. But I also want to say up front to all of us mamas that... We don't need to use it as, oh man, a reason to feel guilty or to feel clingy or to feel the added pressure. Because I will say in doing my research and in reading the book, there were these moments where I was like, what am I doing? Why am I studying parenting instead of parenting? My little 10-month-old is in the other room, and this time is so important with her. What am I doing? What would Bowlby and Ainsworth say? Uh, they're the founders of attachment theory. But nobody is saying well, nobody on Atomic Moms podcast is saying that we need to give up everything in our lives and be with our children 24-7. Nobody is saying that. Our, our babies will turn out just great. And we can have a loving relationship with our children that fosters confidence and security. We can do that. And we can still work and have lives outside of the home. Now, some of you might be thinking attachment theory is the same as attachment parenting. My husband was like, oh, you're talking about the baby wearing stuff. And I was like, no, we have discussed that on the show before. We have talked about nursing on demand and co-sleeping. That's not what we're talking about today. Although, like you see how attachment parenting gets its cues from attachment theory. Now, the first time we talked about attachment theory was with Jennifer Waldberger when we were talking about separation anxiety. So we're just now experiencing separation anxiety with Eliza. And it's, uh, it's, it's not fun. Separation anxiety isn't fun, but it's a part of life and it's a part of uh, our children's development and, you know, it makes me think of that song that my stepmother used to always sing to my baby brother. Mama comes back. She always comes back. <laughs> she always comes back to get me. So, ah, you all, I'm discussing this stuff and I'm like really in the trenches. I'm living it all. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I'm having so much fun on Instagram Insta stories, and I'm loving when you pull quotes from the episodes. Uh, tag Atomic Moms if you share them on your Insta story, because I want to share them too. You know, 
it's hard for me to tell which moments stick out the most for you all. So thank you for doing that. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes. Check out our website, AtomicMoms.com and join our Facebook community. You can sign up for it on our main Atomic Moms Facebook page. I'll be right back with Peter Levenheim to discuss that first year and a half of our child's life and how it influences the rest of their life. His book, The Attachment Effect, it goes on sale June 5th. It's available for pre-order now. If you are curious about your attachment style, he has a quiz at the end of the book. Be right back. Peter, I really, really appreciated reading The Attachment Effect. And in the final pages, you mention that you were present for the birth of your grandchild. And not only present, but in the room. And I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about that experience, because I've never heard of a grandfather in the room before. I I felt so privileged that my daughter invited me to be there with her mother and her sister. We had, a, we had quite a group, and I was just filled with uh, admiration for what she was doing, and also, you know, also it's kind of, I mean, it's very hard to watch your own child be in such pain and not be able to do anything about it. But be that as it may, it, it was still a wonderful experience, and I'm very grateful that I was able, able to share that. Did she approach you about it? How did that come about? Uh, we're very close, and uh, we've we've always been pretty open about things. And my daughter Valerie just said, "Hey, Dad, if you want to, you want to come into the delivery room. I'm glad to have you be there." That is so cool. I I uh, I did sit off to the side a little bit reading the newspaper, <laughs> so I wasn't like you know right there at ringside. You didn't catch the baby. Got it. <laughs> no, no. There was a there was a doctor, there was a doula, um, and uh, other people who could be more appropriately helpful. <laughs> well, I'd like to start this conversation off by sharing with our listeners a quote of yours that I think sums up the importance of this conversation. You write that attachment is important because it helps us understand ourselves. It explains why we often feel and act as we do, especially in response to uncertainty or fear or loss. It's important, too, because it helps us understand others. It shows us how to create and maintain close bonds and how best to respond to others' uncertainties, fears, and losses. Attachment is important because it can help us choose our partners and treat them in ways that respect their own attachment needs. It's important because it helps us be forgiving of our parents, of our partners, and of ourselves, because now we know that everyone at times is struggling to meet their own attachment needs. And attachment is important because it guides us in how to be sensitive and responsive to our children. So thank you for writing that. And I'm wondering if we could start off by explaining what is attachment theory and who is this John Bowlby character and why should mamas care? Bowlby was a psychotherapist in England. And after World War II, and this is kind of the short version of the story, there were a lot of British children who had lost their parents uh, during the war either because their parents were fighting or were victims of the bombing of London, for example. 
The children were kept in orphanages that at the time were state-of-the-art. They had the best nutrition. They knew about germs and prevention of disease. And Boldy worked for a government health agency and was assigned to go into these orphanages and observe the children and figure out why, despite all these scientific advances, many of the children were not thriving. Uh, in fact, there was a high mortality and morbidity rate among these children, and people didn't know why. Bowlby did these observations, and he was also aware of research being done in the United States at the University of Wisconsin by a, a researcher named Harry Harlow working with, with um, baby uh, monkeys. And these are, were famous experiments where monkeys were rather cruelly, actually, uh, removed from their mothers and, and raised in isolation. And then these monkeys were given the opportunity to go and, and hold on to uh, two different types of, of fake monkey mothers. They were both made of wire mesh, but one, was, one had a bottle of milk and the other had, uh, was covered with, with a soft cloth. And what Harry Harlow in Wisconsin found was that whenever these baby monkeys were frightened, they, they would go to the mother covered with cloth rather than even the mother who was able to give them milk. So over in England, Bowlby combined what he was seeing in the orphanages with what Harry Harlow was doing in the United States. And he came up with this notion that what's missing for these children in the orphanages is not nutrition, it's not good hygiene, it's the loving presence of an attentive mother or other parent. And he theorized that human beings, because we're born helpless, are, we could say, programmed at birth to seek out and attach to a competent, reliable caregiver for protection. And usually this is the mother, but it's not gender specific. It could also be a dad or a grandparent or a nanny, but somebody has to do it. And the first, um, let's say, two years tend to be critical. So that, that's in very short form the origin of attachment theory. And so when I'm in baby class with my little Eliza, who's nine months old, new listeners, I also have a four and a half year old, and a mom goes to use the restroom and the baby starts crying and then the mother comes back and the baby settles. It always reminds me of this very important study. Please share with us the strange situation study. Okay, so, so John Bowlby developed attachment theory, but he never came up with a way to measure attachment in young children. However, a woman who was working as his, as his assistant named Mary Ainsworth, who was originally Canadian, did later develop a way of accurately measuring attachment style in very young children. And, and what she developed came to be called the strange situation. And what it involves is taking a mom and a young child, usually, usually under one and a half years of age, and putting them in a, in a strange room, kind of a laboratory setting. It looks like a living room. Maybe there's, there's a, a chair for the mom to sit on. There's some toys for the child to play with. And then there's a third person who comes in, a stranger, 
typically another adult who, who the child does not know. And in a series of episodes that each lasts just a couple minutes, the child is in the room with the mom, with the stranger, without the mom, without the stranger. Um, but finally, in the last episode, after the mom has left, the mom returns. And what Mary Ainsworth's, her brilliant discovery here was that if you want to measure attachment in a young child, watch what happens, not when the mom leaves, but when the mom returns. Because you'll see in that, in that last episode, radical differences in the way a young child will respond to the return of the mother. Uh, in very short, short order, a, a secure child, a child with a secure attachment, will see the mom return and uh, run to the mom, uh, hug the mom, and then when the child feels that the mom's back and the child feels secure, the child will resume playing. There are two types of insecure attachment among children. One we could call avoidant. These children, when the mom returns, often will not move, will continue playing, won't go to the mom, or maybe only reluctantly so, but they won't be able to be comforted by the mother's um, return. The other type of insecure attachment we call anxious. And in this case, when the mom returns, the young child will rush to the mom, but you see that, you, that the child doesn't actually trust that the mom is, is totally present. And when the mom picks up the child, there's often distance between the two of them. The child won't let him or herself be fully embraced by the mother. So this is, uh, this is what we see in the strange situation. For my book, I had the opportunity to watch a lot of videotapes of children in the strange situation. It was remarkable how, how different. Um, they do react depending on their attachment style. What percentage of people have been dealt an insecure attachment? And I say dealt because like, do you feel like that they have any responsibility in it or have they been dealt that attachment? Well, I mean, generally, this is a function of what the child's experienced since birth with a parent or other primary caregiver. But there are other factors. I mean, children are born with a certain temperament. And the temperament can affect how the parent responds to the child. There's also what researchers call um, family ecology factors. You know, whether the mental health of both parents, the, the health of the marriage, the availability of grandparents or supportive neighbors to help out uh, parents in raising the children, financial and other aspects that may stress the family. So I, I don't like to say, you know, put all the, all the pressure on, on the mom or the other mm -hmm. parent uh, here. But speaking in broad terms, yes, as parents, you know, we have an opportunity to care for our newborns in a way that will give them the greatest likelihood, let's say, of developing a secure attachment. So what are some things we should keep in mind? I mean, listeners, listen to all 100 and almost 80 episodes for some other ideas. But what, have, what did you find in your research? What is helpful in providing a secure attachment between caregiver and child? I think the most, thing, the most important thing is that we pay attention to our children and, and try to learn how to read their signals telling us, what they need and when they need it. So 
you know, there's somebody, somebody said that the children are not born with an instruction manual. They are the instruction manual. And if we learn to listen carefully and observe carefully, we can tell, you know, when they want to be hugged, when they want to be fed, when they want to be put down because they're tired, uh, when they want to be stimulated. And if we can learn to read their signals and be responsive to their needs in the moment and be consistent, then over, over those, you know, the months and years of their early childhood, that can help create a secure attachment. I'd like to say in reading your book as well, I was struck by how you, you share that you're an earned, an earned secure. But I want to say to mothers that I think a huge part of being attuned to our children and being able to have that secure attachment with them is really about reflecting on our own journey and what is our attachment style and how when I get triggered by a situation, I can look back and be like, okay, well, this is just because I have an underlying anxious attachment style. And so in doing my own work on myself and in my other relationships, I am able to come to my relationship with my child in a way that is so much healthier than it might have been if I hadn't um, been able to be more self-aware. No, this is, I think, one of the most important points I try to make in the book that it's important that we all learn what our own attachment style is, whether it's secure or anxious or avoidant, for example. Because with that knowledge, we can better understand and regulate our own behavior with our children, with our partners, with our friends, with colleagues at work, in almost every relationship in our lives. I know, for example, for myself, you know, once I came to understand that my own attachment style, you know, at base... Is, is still kind of anxious and that one of the characteristics of people with an anxious attachment is in the face of illness to tend to catastrophize as people put it. So when I, you know, when I get ill um, or injured and I find myself thinking, you know, the worst possibilities, then I can sometimes catch myself, you know, say that, you know, that's your anxious attachment style speaking. You know, you don't really have to catastrophize this event. Totally. It may not turn out just as bad as you're, as you're imagining. My mother, whenever she says, you're just like your father, she's pointing out, like, the anxious attachment style. It gave me so much clarity of, like, the drama in my life. Because I was like, oh, we're actually not that interesting. Like, this is a pattern that plays out again and again and again, like, throughout human history in the way that people relate to one another. My issues with my own mother, and I love her dearly, and we are very close, but, like, that, it just suddenly was like, oh, all our little mini dramas, like, they're not that interesting. Like, they they just pretty much classically follow these traits, of her wanting to, we get in a fight, and I want to, like, get into it, and she wants to pick up and leave. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what this is. Right, and all this plays out in a marriage or other romantic relationship, too, for example, because our partner has an attachment style, just like we do. And 
when we form a couple, we become mutually dependent on each other to fill each other's attachment needs. So if we can understand our partner's attachment style, it gives us a huge leg up in understanding how we can best meet that person's attachment need to keep the relationship healthy. You share this great quote from psychologist Theodore Waters, and it's, there is a thread connecting life in your mother's arms and life in your lover's arms. And yes, I guess. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I, <laughs> I feel like my relationship can be boring at times because I was one of those people that was lucky enough to marry someone with a secure attachment. We'll be married 11 years this summer, and there have been so many times when I've been like, you know, I want to get because of how I'm just wired and probably my early childhood experiences, like because of the anxiety, you know, I'll go to, you know, what what if he cheats on me? What if he leaves me? What if da, 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 da? And he's always like, no, like that's the farthest thing from my mind and my intention. And like, what are you talking about? And you keep thinking. Yeah, of course I do. And I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) Of course, this is the way I think. (laughs) And then reading your book, I was like, oh, wait, no, he's like actually super secure. And like super secure people don't need to go seek out attention from other people. The other quote I like in the book is from a psychology professor talking about dating. And he was pointing out that really, you know, anybody, I mean, people with any kind of attachment style can make a good, uh, you know, partner. But if you can meet somebody who's secure, he says, you're five steps ahead. And, and I love that because, because it's true. You know, it, to have a partner who has a secure attachment is such a benefit to those of us who might not. Um, not only because it makes the relationship more stable and probably long-lasting, but also because one of the ways that we can become what's called earned secure, that is become more secure in our attachment style, is by having a long-term relationship with a person who is secure. Yep. So that's a benefit both ways. My husband has taught me so much. His parents have taught me so much about that. You know, also all this, the self-work. People with an anxious attachment style, are they more likely to look within to address it than the avoidant types? Like, do avoidant types not usually, do they usually not know they're avoidant and not, are they not, I feel like avoidant types might not even believe in this kind of thing. Right, right. Avoidant, people who are avoidant, and this makes up about 25% of the population, they come out of early childhood with the notion that I didn't get my needs met when I was very little, and I'm probably not going to, so I need to be self-reliant. I need to take care of myself and be independent, and I'm not even going to focus and dwell on these things. I'm just going to go out there and take care of myself, whereas people who come out of early childhood with a what we call an anxious attachment, where they had maybe inconsistent care and never could be sure whether it would be there or not, never could be self-confident about that. They're always preoccupied with this stuff. They're never confident that they're going to get their needs met. So when they're in a relationship, they're not completely trusting that their partner will continue to love them. And they're always looking for reassurance. And they're often 
looking backwards and trying to understand why they're feeling this way. These aren't like bad things to be, however. I mean, this is not like a, uh, a disability or anything. It's just an aspect of personality. And by the way, if I could, there are certain advantages to having both these types of insecure attachment. There's been very interesting studies done only recently showing that people with anxious attachment, because they're always kind of hyper-attuned to threats, will pick up on, on, on threats before other people. They're, they're, they're called sentinels because, for example, if they're in a work situation, um, they, they will be the first ones to perceive a threat to the organization. Oh, yeah. I'm an excellent sentinel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You'd be a sentinel. It drives my husband crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. There was this interesting study I talk about in the book where um, researchers brought people into an office setting um, and, and, and there was a computer. They were all sort of standing around. And the researchers created a false fire. Like uh, they, they caused the computer to start smoking as if there were a fire, but there really wasn't. And among this group, people who had previously been identified as anxious were the first ones to detect the, the, the threat of a fire. But the people with the avoidant attachment who are very self-reliant, were the first ones to find a way out of the room to save everybody else. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, but it's just so funny because it's like, to me, it's like, you know, you're you're just always scanning for the exit, you know, and that makes so much sense right. as an avoidant. People with the avoidance would not just detect the threat. They were the first ones to get, find a way out of the room. Yeah, they booked so it. So they are often called rapid responders. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, in other studies of uh, workplace situations, they found that that a a work group, like in an office setting, that has a diverse mix of secure, anxious, and avoidant people is actually the most productive because you get all these different skill sets uh, working together. By the way, I can't believe only 15% are anxious. I feel like in my, maybe I'm just attracted to former anxious or because I live in Los Angeles and I'm friends with mostly artists. So that's probably the reason. I I think people in the arts um, are probably overrepresented among uh, anxious attachment. You know, they're very sensitive to uh, sort of cultural signals and they have a lot of inner stuff they want to express. Yeah, and that we're so set. You mentioned that we're sensitive to our emotional surroundings, and that couldn't be more true for me. And I feel like a lot of what makes this podcast special comes from from those traits, which is you know it's a lot about introspection. It's a lot about looking back at our own childhoods. It's a lot about uh, relating to one another and finding connection. And that sort of need and desire is something that comes probably from an insecure attachment at the very beginning, because there's that longing for connection. I think a lot of people who were securely attached from the beginning, they they would go off and do something else for, you know, this wouldn't be their calling because they'd have other things to work on or figure out. And so in that way, I love how you talk about how we can all sort of 
support one another in the community with these skill sets that are given to us based on, you know, how we were raised in a way that it isn't a bad thing. If you have avoidant tendencies, those are potentially the people that are, you know, I'm just throwing this out there, but I imagine like war correspondents probably have an avoidant (laughs) attachment style. Well, I have a, um, I, I have a chapter in the book on politics. Right. And I point out there in my own research, I, I interviewed a lot of uh, former, current former members of Congress, even a former presidential nominee. I asked them questions from what's called the adult attachment interview, which is kind of the gold standard in measuring attachment style among adults. And while it's a very, admittedly, very small sample, I was surprised to find that in almost all cases, these politicians came out avoidant. And when I thought about it, it actually made sense because many of the traits of an avoidant person would be very helpful to somebody, for example, running for a competitive office. Um, You have to be away from loved ones a long time. You have to be on the road by yourself often. Not trusting other people can be an asset when you're in a, a field that is so rife with betrayal and double dealing as politics sometimes. Peter, I'm wondering if you could share with us your relationship with your mother and your understanding of it after this seven years of study. My mom died at 88 uh, about eight years ago. We had a very warm and close and loving relationship, I'll say that. Um, However, when I was born, there were a couple things mitigating against, I think, her providing care for me that, in retrospect, might have been helpful. She had come down with a, a mild case of polio when my older sister was born. And so when I came along, she did not feel able to actively parent me in the way she might have wished to. She and my dad hired a live-in housekeeper to take care of me. That housekeeper, unfortunately, died suddenly of a heart attack just about when I was one year old and was replaced by a second housekeeper who stayed for about another year, but then was let go. So in my first couple of years, looking back, I'm not sure I had any kind of consistent care. And I didn't understand that or really think a lot about it until I got older and became a dad myself and and saw very radical differences between the way I was and my wife and I were raising our children and what I remembered of my own childhood. <clears throat> so so that's kind of the origin of how I got, got involved in this topic. Um, mm. yeah. know, does that answer your question? Absolutely. And that's the thing about the attachment theory is that it is so deeply personal to us. And it can be confusing and weird and sort of triggering in unexpected ways because we're talking about years that we don't remember ourselves. Right. A great deal of this is uh, pre-memory. So we remember it, I think, you know, it's in our bones. It's like it's in our heart and and it can be very, 
Yeah, confusing. And you're, it's almost like solving a mystery for some of us. Uh, researchers put it that these early experiences that are, that are admittedly pre-memory nevertheless form patterns on the brain. They, they kind of inform us about how relationships work, what to expect in relationships, how much we can trust people, how reliable we, we believe people are, and sort of absorb these lessons in the crib, if you will. And in most cases, they stay with us throughout life and quietly but very powerfully influence the way we behave in all kinds of relationships. So well said. And they also come back in such a big way when we care for our own babies. And I love the solace in knowing that we can become an earned secure. There are things that we can do to almost repattern what our relationships are. We can become conscious of our choices in life, of who we interact with. We can take a moment before we respond to uh, what someone else says or does. Like I'll find, even in working relationships, I'll read an email and I'll have like an instant response and then I'll walk away from it. I'll take the afternoon I'll go for a walk or whatever, and then I can come back to it and respond in a way that isn't coming from a place of anxious insecurity. We, we can learn to do things differently, and right. it's important. You know, for for most, most people, the studies show about 75% will go through their life from infancy to old age with the same attachment style. But you can change, too. I don't think you can just think your way out of it, but researchers have found that through having, let's say, a mentor, maybe an adolescence or young adulthood who, who helps you feel more secure, or maybe therapy, or maybe a relationship partner or spouse who is secure, over time you can become more secure. Some people feel that even the process of parenting, very consciously parenting, can can increase someone's, uh, the parent's own um, attachment security. But I have to say, I mean, it, it is true that these insecure styles do have some benefits, but all things being equal, I'd rather have a secure attachment. It's a much more pleasant way to go through life overall, feeling that you can easily trust people, assuming the best about others, you know, being able to enjoy stable and secure long-term relationships without a lot of strife or tumultuousness, being resilient in the face of, of loss or setbacks or injury or illness. These are all nice things to go through life with. And my feeling is that, you know, when we, when we look at our son or daughter in the crib, we're also looking at the adult they're going to be. And if we can do some things along the way to increase the chances that this, this little one will have a secure attachment. I think it's wonderful for me that we can do that. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Everybody, you can get The Attachment Effect, exploring the powerful ways our earliest bonds shape our relationships and lives, you know, on Amazon at AtomicMoms.com, wherever books are sold. It goes on sale June 5th. Peter, thank you so much for your years 
of research and exploration and for sharing uh, your personal stories and these fascinating studies with us. Thank you for having me. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms.